music, news, interviews, live events, and more. Welcome to the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Hey, it's the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Very excited to have DJ Shadow with us today. Hey, man. Josh, how are you? Good. I don't think we've run into each other since the uncle days, like we said, probably around 98 or so. Yeah, I remember going up to MTV and we we did a, we filmed something and, and an interview and we did something else. And I remember meeting a lot of personalities at that time. Yeah, bringing it back. And I want to talk to you about when you started out in Davis, California, right? And mm-hmm. and so you, the first thing that you actually experimented with was a four-track recorder, right? And Yeah, it was, you know, that was what I could attain on a uh, pizza delivery driver's salary. Yeah, so you're doing delivering pizzas around there? Yeah, and, and, and newspapers. Yeah. Hey, I did a newspaper route, too, to buy records when I was a kid. Exactly. You know? I remember uh, going and collecting money and then immediately going to, I think, Rainbow Records and buying Public Enemy's first album with that money. Yeah. And that's when I kind of went, okay, well, this can work for me. It's amazing. They announced today that they're, uh, or I don't know if they've announced it yet, but they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, they should yeah, be. Yeah, they should be, which is great. So, and I, you know, in secret conversations, we were talking about who should be introduce them oh, nice. uh, that night. You know what I mean? But um, I'm very excited that they got in. Yeah, because it, it makes complete sense to me. You know? Yeah, completely. <laughs> just those records are great. I re- I reference them so often in my daily life. You know, just in terms of, I have uh, something that I call my public enemy feeling, which yeah. is I'm always looking for music that makes me as excited as I was. To yeah. hear their music when it was first coming out. Yeah, remember, remember how great those records were when you first heard "Yo Bum Rush the Show" yeah. and all those records are so great. It was yeah, <laughs> it was like Bad Brains meets I don't know Ultra Magnetic or something. Yeah, DJs. Yeah, it's amazing. Or MCs, I mean. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we just recently did a uh, Bad Brains tribute night that HR played at, and it was all these different people from all bands in New York City. It turned into a Sandy Relief concert oh, nice. that i ended up hosting but it was really cool yeah hr got up there and did reignition and all these you know just pay to come everything it was nice so much cool stuff let's talk about that so that's what you started with and so that was your piece of equipment how much stuff did you have at that point you had a four track yeah i just um i had two belt driven turntables because they were the cheaper option yeah which um, ones were they do you remember the models i think they were jvc yeah and i think if i remember right they each cost 149 dollars yes yeah. Techniques at that time, I think, cost like four twenty nine. Yeah, so to get an SL twelve hundreds or something was it was definitely out of expect- my range. Yeah, yeah, and I wasn't able to afford Techniques twelve hundreds until I actually did a, a a mix for Tommy Boy. It was my first commissioned uh, remix gig. And what um, record was that? Well, they did a, a ten year anniversary of Planet Rock. Ah, oh, that's great, Africa Bombada, Soul yeah. Sonic Force, and <laughs> it, I think they started looking for mixes around. Well, I think like the middle of 91 because they knew it was coming up. And I'm sure that Tom Silverman wanted, you know, he was anticipating a 10-year anniversary for it. And at that time, I was doing uh, mega mixes, I guess, on my four-track for the local uh, station that was playing rap stuff um, yeah. in the Bay Area. And you did college radio then too, didn't you? You know, it's funny. I, I, I take credit for doing college radio, but I never actually earned my stripes. And what I mean by that is... Over the years, I would just sit in with people who had shows. The main reason was because I just never wanted to do that graveyard 4 to 6 a.m. shift. Yeah. That everybody had to do to earn The obligatory, you have to, you know. (laughs) I just, I never, for whatever reason, and I I really didn't want to have to sit there and read, you know, like, and, you know, go shop at this dress shop downtown who support, you know, they had to do so much kind of what I 
considered to be rather dull and and um really for me it was just about going down there and being able to play my little even before i had a four track recorder i was doing mixes on a little um all-in-one stereo system you remember those ones that had a turntable on the top and a stereo receiver and a a dual cassette deck yeah it was an all-in-one unit and i had figured out how to kind of you know modify mine to be able to do transforming and, and simple mixing on it so yeah I used to go down there, play those, and really just rummage through the promos that the DJs didn't add to the station. <laughs> yeah, the things that were they there, not like a pile to take. Yeah, like pretty a take much. Pile. Yeah, I mean, you know, back then there was no sense of uh, oh, this stuff is coveted or rare or anything like that. It was just a box of vinyl. Yeah, and and I would, you know, I would always ask first, but you know, frequently they would say, yeah, grab a couple or grab five or you know whatever you want. Yeah. So it was kind of a means to an end, I have to say. And, you know, you're one of those people like myself who enjoyed going through used record bins and yeah. buying stuff, and you put all that to use. Yeah. People were you know, people were excited to see what you were doing by the time they found introducing, you well, know? Well, and the other thing, that it was necessary at that time because um, so few rap records from the East Coast were distributed as far as the West Coast. A lot of people, I think, don't really realize that when I first started going to the UK, I realized that far more imports or or I should say exports from New York made it to the UK than ever did the West Coast. Isn't that strange when you think about it? Now? Yeah, I mean on the West Coast we had a lot of our own West Coast rap and we had you know kind of big acts that would yeah. be distributed and then the the odd You mean like NWAs and, and the you of know, course, King yeah. T's and things of all nature, yeah. Yeah, I mean we had a, a lot <laughs> of stuff but it was pretty difficult to find. I mean there were literally thousands of indie records coming out in New York in the 80s like every month. Yeah. And we got maybe 1% of that. So occasionally stations and, and, and other outlets would receive promos in the hopes of receiving distribution or getting something going. So the second hand or, or cutout bins were really the best place to look for rap. Yeah. You could find just really cool things. And Stuff if you just looked at a cover or just you saw a name that sounded interesting, you would usually buy it, right? Well, what <laughs> it, it was really funny how, you know, even groups that had a really tenuous link to these famous New York DJs like Mr. Magic and Red Alert and Marley Marl, a lot of them would credit them or thank them anyway in the hopes of getting airplay. And in a way, you know, a buyer like me... Um, that would be an immediate thing it, that would throw up the flag exactly, to buy it, it would right? Be, it would be like somebody, you know, you're looking for a punk record or something and someone thanking, you know, I don't know, Jello Biafra or something. Yeah. You don't know who they are, but you're like, okay, they're linked in. Yeah, somewhere. and you see Red Alert's name and Marley right. Marl, and you're like, okay, here we go. Exactly. And you know it's getting played like on the night shows here or, in New York or City. Or they hope it is. Yeah, or they're, they're hoping at that period of time. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. So when you, when, tell me about the process of doing introducing for you. Well, that record, you know that it's it's been credited by so many people love it, consider it one of the most influential records. And, you know, the whole thing with Andy Pemberton calling it trip-hop originally back mm -hmm. in the day, you know. What was it? What did he? Was it Midnight in a Perfect World? Is that he heard the first time? Or yeah, I I just think that um, suddenly in the UK there was um, something happening. It wasn't you know hardcore rap because at that time, going back to ninety four ninety five, rap was defined at that time by what Dre and Snoop and Warren G and and what Death Row was doing basically, and of course, and then you know eventually what Jay Z and and Biggie were doing on the East Coast. So. Rap was it had crossed over to the mainstream, and what we were doing obviously wasn't hip hop in that sense. Even though 
what Jeff Barrow of Portishead and I and others were doing was sort of um, taking our lifelong experience with hip hop and applying our own existence to it. You know, we didn't, I didn't grow up in New York City. I didn't grow up in Compton, obviously. But yet my entire vision and my entire, uh, you know, even my social sensibilities, political sensibilities were steered throughout my teenage years by hip hop. And I wanted to contribute, but I didn't want to imitate. And that's when I started kind of um, coming up with this sound that just felt like something that, that had my personality on it. And, you know, again, the media was trying to figure out what to call it. And I remember uh, early on doing a photo shoot for either Enemy or Melody Maker, and I showed up and they had this preconceived idea of what I must be like. And they wanted me to wear this giant Dr. Seuss hat and be smoking a giant, like, you know, five foot. Fo- phony split. blunt. <laughs> yeah. And I just went, I walked in and I was just like, I'm sorry, I'm not doing that. You know, yeah. because I think people were sort of like, well, where are these people coming from? And, and, and are they really hip hop? And, and that was one of the things I used to really relish at that time, actually. Um, for years, it seemed like people really wanted to test whether I really knew my stuff or not in terms of the culture and in terms of where rap and hip hop came from. And it was really hard at first for, for people to, to accept or understand that, you know, I grew up completely straight, like a purist. But then at a certain point I decided, well, again, if I'm going to contribute, why would I imitate Premier or Large Professor? I'm influenced by them and inspired by them, but they are already existing and at the top of their game and I, I just was trying to provide an alternative yeah you uh and you did i mean which is a cool thing where you did you become friends with those people like from bristol and some of those other folks in the uk because they discovered your music well i've done a, a fair amount of touring through the years with massive attack yeah so i got to know them um a lot of the others not really i mean i i was always a fan from a distance of portishead but i never really rubbed shoulders with them in any way and then Eventually, what happened is that that Moak sound began, especially with the release of my, my first full length, um, began to kind of cross over critically to other rock groups and things. So that's how I met, you know, groups like Radiohead that were emerging and, and also trying to say something different. And I think there was a little bit of a kindred spirit there in that respect, because I didn't want to be a prototypical artist in any respect and i don't think they did either they wanted to just forge their own way which is what they you did and they did as well Mm. and how about the uncle did you enjoy working on the uncle project yeah uncle was um just a gift in so many ways in the sense that um i had made introducing almost in complete isolation with the uh occasional and very important input from dan the automator whose studio i was using. yeah dan's great by the way yeah yeah and then the Uncle Project was basically a chance for me to to really mix with other talent. And, and you know, um, the key, though, with the Uncle Project was that I told James, you know, look, I, I'll, I'll make the beats. And uh, sorry, James Lavelle, who was running Moa. Yeah. Um, I, I told him I would, you know, obviously make the, the music and, and, and the beats. But I told him straight up is uh, that I didn't have what it took uh, just in terms of an engineer acumen. To be able to like mic a drum kit or, or get the right vocal mic set up and all that kind of stuff. I didn't have that that background. And so the bridge between the guest artists and myself and James was Jim Abbas, who has since gone on to produce everyone from, you know, Kasabian to Adele and, and so on and so forth. 
so he was really the bridge. He was somebody that was just a few years older than us, and, and he knew everything there was to know about. You know, at one point we had Mark Hollis come in to play piano. Mark Hollis is a very... Um, uh, talk, talk. Yeah, from Talk, Talk. Yeah. He's a very, you know, uh, musician's musician. Yeah. Those and, records are great and really under, the, oh, yeah, I mean, underappreciated. Totally. You know? <laughs> It's so, my so life, and Abbas, Color of Spring, and laugh, you know, Laughing Stock. All those records. Laughing Stock in particular. Yeah. yeah, was a big influence on us. Yeah, great stuff, right? Yeah. Do you know? They, it's funny when you look back on the Hollis Brothers, um, that song "Talk Talk," which was like their first kind of new wave, you know, like post-punk uh, dance hit, was actually a punk song first. It's mm -hmm. really rare, but there's this Streets compilation, which was a Beggar's Banquet compilation. That there's a version of it called Talk, 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 Talk. Wow. And it's a punk version of the song wow, before cool. they found their new footing. And so they, what year would that have been? Like 81 or something? Uh, earlier. Like I'm thinking 70. it's like 78, something oh, like wow. that. You know, 79. Oh. It's crazy when you hear it, though. Back to back. Very few people know it exists. That's cool. But uh, yeah, they were, they're were. they such a... I love those guys. Yeah, and, and even when that song became a hit, you knew there was something going on that was a little bit different from a lot of the fluff that was also hitting at that time. Yeah. There was some substance to it that was different. Yeah, and all the, uh, yeah, and those albums too, you know, like yeah. from Parties Over Up, there's there's great songs on those records. Yeah. So uh, I love that. And I look, speaking of the guests who ended up playing with you, and on, on Reconstructed, you know, there's the two versions on there. Now I noticed the Richard Ashcroft track that you guys did there. Tell me about working with Richard, Tom York, Ian Brown, the guys that ended up working on the Uncle record. Were you fans of the things that they were doing before, like Stone Roses? and Well, you know, the, the main Earth. thing that, that I always try to give James Lavelle, um, the other half of Uncle, credit for, because he got a lot of um, stick, to use the, you know, the English parlance, um, at the time for being viewed as not contributing as much as I did to the, to the music on the record. But the thing that I always try to give him a lot of credit for was he was the A&R vision of the record. I mean, I didn't choose Richard Ashcroft. I didn't choose Ian Brown. I didn't choose Tom York. Those were all his choices. Sure, we, we would, you know, he would bring them up and, and ask me what I thought. But, um, you know, the only person I, I wanted on the record as kind of a counterweight was Cool G Rap. Yeah. Um, just because that was a personal favorite thing to tick off my list. But yeah. um, with Richard Ashcroft, we... Uh, on the initial Uncle Sessions in L.A. in 95 when we were working at um, the BC Boys studio, we were driving uh, to and from the studio every night um, listening to A Northern Soul by by The Verve, which was kind Great of a album. breakthrough album. And was there was still underground. I mean, nobody was... I don't think anybody anticipated what ended up happening to them. With Urban Hymns and how yeah, it with blew Urban up. Hymns, yeah, so in a lot of ways, James really anticipated a lot of these, you know, I mean, as an A&R man, it was kind of impeccable. You know, Radiohead was not, you know, OK Computer hadn't come out yet um, when we first made contact. And I remember meeting with Tom York at the uh, in New York. I can't remember the name of some hotel that at the time was kind of the hotel for musicians and playing him the demo. And he was just laughing. He's like, it's all completely out of tune. I was like, that's all right. Yeah. He's like, no, that's great. I love it. You know. Yeah. So I mean, you know, when we first approached a lot, obviously Ian Brown was Ian Brown. Yeah. But Tom York and Richard Ashcroft weren't the luminaries that they were soon to be, and and I think that made the whole project a lot easier. Uh, but and then Ian Brown actually, I didn't meet him until we did Top of the Pops. It was really surreal doing Top of the Pops. I mean, it was Ian Brown, James, and myself. I mean, I'm scratching. James is playing the Mellotron 
all the other acts on top of the pops were really uh really sort of pop you know yeah and we did not belong it was kind of a nice moment but ian brown was very much james's thing in fact after the album came out james basically took uh be there which was an instrumental and just uh, sort of rearranged it and had ian sing over it but i was back home in the states yeah but it was fun to do top of the pops right i mean it was it was different it was weird right yeah it was it was a lot of fun because we felt it, it did feel a little bit kind of punk that we were there and we also everything was completely live in the sense that you know he was actually singing james was actually playing i was actually scratching and uh i hadn't seen it in years and years and years and finally it showed up on youtube a couple of years ago and were you excited to see it did you look at yourself as a younger self and just say i remember this moment well i i kind of was <laughs> dreading seeing it after all these years because i was really concerned as to how the scratching held up yeah but I was kind of like, oh, actually, okay, I can, I can live with that. So, yeah, it's great. Speaking of other guests who are on the box set, let's talk about working with Terry Reid, who's, yeah. you know, kind of, a, you know, he's a great singer. Um, he was originally supposed to be the original singer, as they say, for Led Zeppelin, but has always had his own thing going on and yeah. made these records like Bang Bang, You're Terry Reid. And, you know, yeah. I always <laughs> used to find that record and, and just stare at the cover. I mean, yeah. for years and years and years. It was such an interesting title, I thought. And, uh, yeah, I didn't really know all of his history, but basically what happened is I did this demo for the last album that came out at the end of last year, uh, the end of 2011. And it was my favorite demo, bar none, that I did. And I was so fond of it that I, I just, I was looking for a certain type of voice, and I didn't want it to be, you know, some current golden child or you know the name of the moment i wanted it to be a seasoned voice didn't matter to me whether they were well known or not and i i kept going back and forth on potential candidates and basically i had to finish the album and, and i didn't want to put the track out until it was exactly how i had you know heard it in my head fortunately the the opportunity came along with the box set to do a new track and you know i was talking with a good friend of mine in chicago and he happened to mention that he had just seen Terry Reed and he said it was amazing. He still got it, you know, and he was really cool. They all, you know, sort of kicked it after the show and went back to somebody's house and played records, you know. And he said, you should really consider Terry Reed. And it was just sort of like the most obvious hidden in plain sight option, you know. And uh, because I really love those L.A. albums he did in the mid-70s. Yeah. With these amazing session guys and um yeah you know so, it's amazing you listen to uh, cheap trick speaking of the, around chicago area do that cover on their first album speak now or forever hold your peace which right. is you know terry's got a great voice robin zander has a great voice it made complete sense to do a song like that and show your vocal range but also the soulfulness only, so, I, by the way i have to say only you would be able to pull cheap trick public enemy and all these <laughs> other uh types of music together but I, i'm the same way i mean i i i like exploring music that um was hidden from me for years yeah and and with the same with contemporary music i mean i i always like to gravitate towards music that people don't necessarily think to ask me about yeah but anyway terry reed was and we finally got together and you know he was super up for it and the session was amazing you know he he's the type of person that he he has fun i mean you know I think a lot of times with people who earned a respectable living but never really broke through in the way that they could have, 
there's a genuine sort of um and and to still be doing what you know he loves to do after this time i think there's a genuine gratitude in the longevity of it and not having these really crazy ups and downs he's just sort of been cruising and as a result he he loves what he does he's still um you know invested in it and you can tell in the studio i mean yeah should i do it again what if we tried it like this let me let me plug my guitar into this could you try it like this and uh that's that's all you can ask for as a collaborator yeah and it was uh, speaking of other collaborators too and that's a great story to hear about terry reed because it's nice to know you know somebody with his level of respect and talent is not jaded in the sense that he's you know has been bitter or any of that no, exactly kind of thing, yeah, yeah. which is what i know you're explaining which is great it's that gratitude of still going you know what i mean which i think is cool. which in some ways i can kind of relate to me too i mean you know what i mean like i'm grateful to still be doing what i do and i'm here with you and you know yeah, you've been yeah. doing it for a lot of years so it's cool you know absolutely now little dragon you worked with on that too and big boy was recently here and was talking about of course little dragons on you know um mama told me on his new record and tell me about working with little dragon well it's kind of um kind of interesting because i had met yukimi the the lead singer um years and years ago when she was actually with another band and we shared a ride from a festival in rural uh ireland back into dublin city center and then i bumped into her again about a year later in japan at another festival and she was with little dragon and handed me their first cd i remember staring at the cover and and kind of going oh yeah oh oh we know each other okay cool and this is you know going back to 0607 and I sort of just forgot about her and them. And what happened was I had stored up all these uh, credits for a record store in San Francisco, one of the main record stores there. For doing is that Amoeba or was it? Yes, it was yeah. Amoeba. Love that place, don't you? Yeah. So for years <laughs> I had, you know, done these in-stores. And at the end of the in-store, they would give you a credit slip for like $250, $300 to do some shopping. And it was their way of saying thank you for bringing people in. So I had like $1,000 worth of credit saved up. And I just finally decided at the beginning of 09, like this is a really good time to just go and just roll the dice on a bunch of new music. And to make a long story short, the single, my single favorite one track out of all the CDs, LPs, 45s, and everything else that I bought that day, and I'm not talking about old stuff, it was all brand new stuff, was um, a track by Little Dragon on a 45 and uh, called Fortune. And I just completely fell in love with the track and became obsessed with the band sort of minorly. And realized when I saw the picture of the band, it, I, I plugged it all in and I just went, oh, what an idiot. Yeah, what band was she in the first time around? Um, I can't remember, but it was it was kind of like a jazzier type yeah. thing. And, and her vocal styling on in that group was completely different. I'm sure... It's out there to be done. Yeah. To, to, that answer's out there, but I'm I'm blanking on it now. Yeah. But that's cool, though. And you put it all together again and went, wow, look, this is who it is. And it's. Yeah. And then I just started, you know, coming to see them play when they came to the Bay Area and watching them go from like driving their own van to a real tour bus to, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, <laughs> but, you know, I wasn't working on an album during that time. And, and it's one of those things. By the time I started working on my record, they had just collaborated with Gorillaz, and I remember thinking, "Ah, oh, I missed my window, you know, and like they're gonna blow up now." And 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 I was also a little bit turned off because you know I didn't want to be perceived as following someone else, or you know, you know, just sort of doing the easy thing. 
but in the end, I just decided, no, I have a legitimate reason for working with these these guys, and, and I, I still wanted to do it. A, that you love that track and your fan, but also that you have that, you've been passing yeah. each other. And it was meant a, to be. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was, you know, after the fact and, and much later, but I sent probably my second favorite demo over to to Sweden where they were sort of taking some time off the road, and they had a very brief window to do the track, and... Um, when I received their demo back, it was just one of those great moments. I was driving in my car and popped the CD, and I just went, yep, this is exactly what I knew it was going to be. Yeah, it's great. Very satisfying. So Reconstructed, the uh, there's two versions of it now. There's, you know, the there's actually three. There's three? <laughs> is there, yeah. Well, because there's a super deluxe version, right? Is there yeah. like a... Is there yeah, a deluxe there's the one super... CD, and then there's the two CD. Yeah. And then there's the ridiculous... Box set, which is great, though. I mean, you've got that one has six CDs and and it has a uh, DVD as well, right? Mm -hmm. Which is is the DVD the live in Glasgow? No, or is that the CD? Is actually there's live. actually so there's seven CDs and one DVD. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, there's all the albums, um, and then well, you know, it's intended to be the definitive. Yeah, that's kind of what we titled the box set. Um, it couldn't be everything because, you know, there's so many remixes and B-sides. So, so the vinyl is the best of the remixes, right? Right. The 180 gram vinyl there, which is really cool, you know, and then everything else that's inside of it. But it's exciting. And then they get an autographed thing from you as well inside of it. Too, yeah. Which, so there's 500, right? 500. So you took a little time to, to sign. You know, yeah. <laughs> actually, I came back from touring Asia and this was only in, I want to say this was August. And signing the cards was one of the last things to be done for the box. And uh, it was daunting coming back from... I was pretty wiped out when I got back and jet-lagged. And the cards had to be done in like 36 hours. And it, it does take time because it was... I had to sign them and number them. Yeah. Um, so. And you didn't want to like, you know, just like, you know, scribble exactly, on it at that yeah. point. You wanted to make sure that, you know, because people were laying out. Because just with 500 yeah. limited edition like that, which yeah. is amazing. Did you guys actually remaster the records when you put them on CD? We did, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted it to be cohesive because, as you know, I mean, the mastering uh, standards of 1996 and 95 are very um, different than very today. Very different than today. Things are, you know, my mo my more recent albums are so much louder. You know, yeah. Just to compete. Isn't it crazy when you go back and you listen to some of those old CDs and how they're like, especially when they first started making CDs, just like how the difference they sound. Like take a Doors album or something yeah. and it's, you know, it's really like quiet money and tinny, and then you'll, when they remaster them, they just sound, you know, things sound so much better. So you did it so that it would have, have a cohesive sound. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And some, some tracks needed freshening up, and in some cases I had to strip samples out. I mean, there was a lot of... How many samples did you have to strip out? Was it, was it because of a time constraint on the original licensing for them? No, it was... Uh, trying to think. There were a number of different reasons. I mean... In some cases, it was because there's been contact made, but the, the issue hasn't been resolved. Yeah. And, you know, you can't really risk... Going through a lawsuit and having to pay actually every dime you made on the record itself yeah. because somebody decides to... Well, the box set is very much a... It's a loss leader. I mean, yeah. You know, fortunately, I didn't have to pay for everything. I mean, the label does that, but it'll... You know, the label, they're on board with why we do these things. You know? Yeah. Sometimes you have to kind of do a product that is intended to be not a gift, but you know what I mean? It's, I think they're charging exactly what they had to pay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But it's great though. Yeah. And for your fans, it's a really cool thing to have. And I, I, I feel like at, at this time, 
Um, you know, because the concept of a best of has been kicking around for a while, and I really didn't want to do it until I felt like there was enough music that I was, you know, really proud of to to occupy a full disc. And I do feel like this is a good time to put a marker in the ground and say, okay, this is kind of a 20-year frame of time. And I do feel like there are a lot of thematic similarities that string the albums together. And whatever I do from here forward, I don't necessarily want to have to... Um, adhere to those same threads. I, want, I may want to explore other grounds. So for a lot of reasons, I felt like this is a good time to do it. Yeah, well, it's a great compilation and so much cool stuff on it. Right. Shadow, I want to thank you for coming by and hanging out today. Thank you. Tell everybody to pick up Reconstructed, and if you're a completist, you want to have a great box. I mean, that's a beautiful box set that you guys have. Yeah, you it, it looks amazing. I mean, it, it's not your your typical sort of box with a lid. It's, it's a serious piece of... Uh, you know, it's heavy. Yeah, <laughs> it's great, literally and yeah. Yeah. and musically. But yeah, Shadow, thanks for coming by and hanging out. Thank you, Matt. It's great to have you. It's the Hivecast, DJ Shadow. This has been the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. For all things music, news, interviews, live events, and more, go to mtvhive.com.